Hello, everyone. Welcome to Room Now's coverage of ACR Convergence 2023. Today, we're going to talk about abstracts and new research concerning the JAK and TIC inhibitors. Uh, and there's a lot of them. It's cross-disciplinary. Uh, I think you're going to bounce around quite a bit in this session. I'm joined by the faculty of Room Now who covered the meeting, covered all topics, but this faculty actually was looking specifically at the JAK TIC inhibitors and see what that might mean. Um, I'll let them introduce themselves. Uh, Mike. Hi, I'm Mike Putman from the Medical College of Wisconsin. Thanks for having me. And David. Uh, David Liu from Melbourne, Australia. And Janet. Janet Pope, London, Canada. And I'm Jack Cush with Room Now in Dallas, Texas. Uh, we're going to give you several rounds of what we thought were our most in, important abstracts. Let's begin with uh, Dr. Mike Putman. Yeah, so I, I want to talk about abstract 2253 today, which evaluated the use of ducravacitinib um, among patients with psoriatic arthritis. Now, I'm, I'm excited about ducravacitinib in the tick inhibitor class. I think it's one of the, the next big thing that's coming down the pipeline for rheumatology. But the psoriatic data, as usual, has been a little slow to materialize. We have a whole lot on psoriasis. Later in 2022, they did publish uh, the results of a phase two trial that looked pretty good for ducravacitinib among, among patients with psoriatic arthritis. But they're sitting on all this psoriasis data. They had over a thousand people that went through Poetic 1 and Poetic 2, which is the trials program for psoriasis. And at the meeting this year, we saw the subset of patients from those trials who had joint symptoms, which I thought was very useful. Um, so this was presented. Um, and you know what they found was 185 patients who had um, psoriatic arthritis. That's 11% of the psoriasis trials agenda, but that's enough to say something useful. And so what they looked at were the joint scores, um, the specifically the visual analog scale scores, and they compared them to both placebo and a premolast, which is useful. I love head-to-head -head studies, and that sort of stood out to me here. Uh, Ducravacitinib relatively easily beat placebo, but it also beat a premolast for joint pain and joint scores. So, you know, there's a decrease of negative nine, give or take, for a premolast on a visual visual analog scale and 23 on a visual analog scale for ducravacitinib. So to me, that's pretty encouraging. I have kind of expected that this would be good for joints, but looks like it's about twice as good as a premolast uh, as just sort of a baseline. So looking forward to phase threes and hoping to be able to use this in the future, but I think very encouraging data. Yeah, these kind of studies and even these kind of analyses, you want to see the, the prospective uh, phase three, double blind, et cetera. But these kind of comparative comparison studies are going to be important when it comes to that decision of where it fits in your arsenal. Uh, and you have to extrapolate clinical trial data to actual clinic use uh, applicability. And that's not quite so simple. Um, Mike, where, how do we better do that? I mean, right now, it's a, it's a, it's a cost, toss of the coin, a, a hope that the results you see in these kind of analyses will translate to practice. But is that true? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in this topic in particular. The translation of phase two trials to phase three trials that are successful and then to FDA approval is actually remarkably poor. So when you read a phase two study, you should always take it with a grain of salt. There's sort of a mass of information, though, behind some that makes you more encouraged. So for this one, the, the phase two styles, phase two trials for ticks have been really encouraging. And then the other thing is, you know, there's sort of a biologic plausibility here that I think is, is really helpful. You know, we know that the JAK-STAT pathway has been really helpful. Tick is sort of along that, but beside it. So we're kind of praying that we'll get some of the benefits without the side effects. And the last thing, especially for this, is that this worked in psoriasis. It's very clear that this works for psoriasis. And so I expect it to work for psoriatic as well. Mm. Um, what, Janet, David, what do you think of this? 
So I would add one thing. So I think it's important. And I guess you would say, would you compare it to Prevalast? Because we do tend to think it's weaker. It's weaker in psoriatic arthritis, we think, than some other comparators. And it's weaker in psoriasis. But I like that. And what I would add is I think phase three, we should stop this placebo control. The ethics of it are getting problematic. Just do your standard of care. They can pick the drug, such as, say, adalimumab or something, and just go that way and forget the placebo arm in, in phase three. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. David? Well, yeah, and I think that it'll be very useful for the kind of data that we need in, in, in actual clinical practice. I look at what the dermatologists have and um, because I think they've been trying to figure out where to slot Ducrapacitinib in amongst their um, hierarchy and, and it, you know, it's not achieving, doesn't seem to be achieving the same kind of numbers in that space as a biologic um, but is doing better than a Premalast. But they have a very beautiful hierarchy essentially of of efficacy from multiple head-to-head -head studies. We know Gisalcomab outperforms IL-17A, IL-17A outperforms TNF inhibitors in, in, in chronic plaque psoriasis. We um, obviously, there've been some attempts in psoriatic arthritis to try and take that on, but to be able to try and slot in, know where to use Ducravacitib in the wide armamentarium that we do have, we'll get those kind of data from proper comparative effectiveness studies, which really, you know, I think should be worked in, in that phase three in the way that Janet says. I want to throw in a quick hit because it's just going along the line of Ducravacitinib and, and there were a few abstracts that were um, spinoffs of the Paisley study. Paisley was Ducravacitinib in SLE, a phase two that looked good that was presented in pre uh, last year. Um, uh, and in these analyses, they looked at the patients um, in Paisley and the ones who had skin disease and they included um, both uh, DLE, SCLE and acute LE patients uh, in this study, and they looked at uh, how well they responded with the, the three different doses of Ducravacitinib versus placebo, and they used Classy uh, as uh, either a, like a Classy 100 or Classy 50 response, and a 50% reduction in the DLE patients was achieved in uh, a basically 60 to 70% of patients. Um, again, the best performing dose being the marketed dose of three milligrams BID, and the 100% um, clearing was seen at, at week 48 in about really looks like 20 to 25% of patients, again, with the best dose or looking at like three uh, milligrams. And then they also showed the patients who actually did have improvement were the ones who also had a high um, alpha interferon, a type one interferon signature. And that's the, the presupposed uh, or the supposed um mechanism of action as to why TIC2 inhibition may work is that you're affecting a number of things, including alpha interferon. They showed that there was some evidence of that in another abstract. So uh, again, some encouraging data from sub-analyses, post-hoc analyses uh, of a former data set. Okay. I mean, I guess the really encouraging thing about it, of course, is the safety profile. And I know that we can't really make too many inferences about the safety profile at this point in time, but seems all the plausibility that it doesn't have, even though it's a jack inhibitor, it's not that kind of jack inhibitor that may well have a different type of, um, well, it, it's, it affects different uh, pathways. We would expect it to have different, a different safety profile, but um, we get some sort of reassurance. This is fitting more in the Apremolast category than, than, you know, say the tofacitinib category. And that maybe, you know, if it's, if the whole idea of this is not to interrupt dermatologists golf games with um, abnormal lab results, and this might fit into that category. God forbid we get in the way of their golf games. That's so true. Janet, what's your, next, what's your next one? 
Uh, so thanks for asking because we were on the topic of head to head. So I chose abstract 0450, which um, I must say the Europeans do these pragmatic studies way better than North America's, for instance. So um, Vandalar et al. looked at a pragmatic study, so real world clinic, active RA comparing baricitinib albeit four milligrams per day in general, versus a TNF after a CSD mark failure. So the first thing is you don't have licensing um, after CSD mark uh, failure in uh, US, or at least you've got the warnings not to do it. But in the rest of the world, they do have four milligrams of baricitinib. And to remind everyone, the RA beam study showed that four milligrams of baricitinib and active RA added to methotrexate was indeed better than um, uh, adalimumab as a comparison arm. So this was, um, so the good news, I guess, is about 100 people per arm. It was about equal per arm. So it was non, non-inferior or meaning about equal. Uh, so that's good news. You can use what you would like to use. The other news, though, is if you really look, the, the depth, the rapidity and the depth of the responses always were numerically better on baricitinib. So I guess the, the question is, should we be saying RA beam was reproduced in the real world or should we be saying that they're all about equal, just choose something and treat to a target? Well, I think it reframes where you, what's the story you're telling yourself about baricitinib's efficacy in RA. Um, and I think it is different in the United States where uh, they did get the four milligram dose and were locked into two. And um, and we seem to talk more about, you know, VTE uh, related and cardiovascular related toxicity than we do about its, its efficacy. Um, I've used a lot of four milligrams uh, per day uh, off label uh, with great success, but you, have, you do have to worry about what the FDA was worried about, which is more uh, at least VTE events. And, and then with the oral surveillance, higher doses of JAK inhibitors overall, carry that cardiovascular and malignancy potential. And that's a complex issue we're not gonna get into. So I like this kind of data. Um, I I always wonder when we go to ACR, whether we should be looking at real world studies. Um, is Because some of those are a lot of like what I did last summer, um, compilations of what was on that pile in the corner on my in my office, uh, as opposed to a really well done trial. But anyway, what do you guys think of this, uh, this particular study? Good, David. Oh, no, and I think um, it does kind of ask broad questions about whether we should be a bit more exacting in the way that we, um, well, firstly, in the way which we approach, approach dosing. And I think, you know, more, um, I don't know, with my pharmacology background, I always kind of look at these things and think, well, we get it, we, we, we find, I mean, even when there's um, low into individual um, pharmacokinetic variability, we still kind of have a registered dose and we just stick to that dose for everyone whether we should be personalizing this a little bit more. But then secondly, whether uh, I, the second question comes to mind is more about the broader comparative effectiveness between different JAK inhibitors and whether we really should be, uh, I mean, I think we, we've had, we've had, we've had Barry now for quite some time. We've got a, a lot of use of Uber, especially here in, uh, well, especially in Australia. And I think that, I mean, I'd really like to be able to try and see us, in real world terms, if we don't think there's necessarily, if preface, we don't think there's necessarily a difference between in the efficacy between the two to try and, and test them head to head in real world practice and to do more of this kind of stuff. Because we lack the data and it's it's really sad that we go through life and we just ha we're happy not knowing and we're happy not making decisions without that kind of data, even though that's what we do. The FDA is looking positively uh, at real world 
trials that are well done, especially when you use this uh, clinical trial emulations design. We saw a lot of it at this meeting uh, as, a, as a better way of doing um, sort of indirect comparisons, if you will. Um, let's, uh, let's move on to our next one, David. Uh, yes, well, I don't think we could go through a JAK inhibitor, uh, TIC2 inhibitor panel without talking about TLL018. Um, that's the Chinese compound that's gone through that has had a phase 2A that was presented in the late breaking at ULR. We saw more detail here um, in the abstract sessions um, at ACR. So it's, it's a JAK1 TIC2 inhibitor. And they put it, speaking of trying to hold it to um, have make sure that the, contr the um, control is an active comparator. So they tested it up against TOFA 5 twice daily. And they had different doses of um, this TLL018. This was entirely done in China. Um, and the, the um, investigational product absolutely smashed out of the park. Um, we're talking about ACR 50 at 12 weeks of 72 compared to 41. I mean, th these kind of numbers are, if, if once again, with the provisos that, um, that Mike said before about phase, getting excited about phase two data, these kind of numbers are the kind of thing that get you out of bed, right? And um, also the safety uh, translated through is very well. And I guess maybe that's maybe what we'd expect with a Jack one married with a tick two, where we haven't seen much in, in terms of, of safety concerns from tick two. Now, tick two inhibition. Uh, I mean, I think there are obviously a lot of provisos on this, and I think that um, to greater or lesser extents, I've had confidence or lack of confidence in in the clinical trial infrastructure in China. I think we would like to um, kind of see. Um, I think when we, we see the full paper, we'll be we'll be um, a little bit more reassured. I think that. Um, also, it was really interesting the comments afterwards about where they seem they they want to take this, and uh, they were asked. Uh, Rory Fleischman asked about when we were going to see global trials, and so followed up. That was followed up in in the in the questions with, well, we're focusing on a phase three in um, China now, and our priority is phase three registration in China, but um, we're pursuing a psoriasis syndication with global trials, and then yours um, actually interviewed. Um, the uh, presenting author, Dr. Liang, on um, uh, for Room Now, and you can go down to the Room Now website and see that. And um, he, the, it was basically about um, kind of, you know, that they're looking for a global partner to try and pursue these phase three trials in rheumatoid arthritis. So, I mean, I think that's what we, in on a global scale, and that's what we'd really like to see. So, um, it's a fascinating evolution in terms of taking this product um, and seeing how it goes in 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 the broader in the broader test of things. So this abstract at ULAR and here at ACR either gets people scratching their head or raving about the results. What does it do for you, Janet? Actually both. <laughs> so um, there's there's some trial design interesting points um, in, in some of these ones, uh, uh, large trials, well done, well performed. Um, they, they don't always give us the background. What have they tried before? Uh, because if you're a multi-drug failure, including a JAK1, um, and you go into a trial like this, that could blunt a response if it's different per arm. So we don't always have the rest of the records on the patients. That would be our normal table one and a you know, in a peer reviewed paper and uh, that I look at. So, but I also think, you know, we need a comparison because it's always compared to what, 
Are you way better than a standard or is this what you would think of as an ACR response or if it's in PSA, a PSA response? Because all we know is compared to placebo, if you don't throw an active in, you don't always know. So the abstract is, um, I thought this was 1015, but David, you say it's 0840, is that right? Uh, yes, 0840 is what I've got, yeah. Okay. Mm. So Mike, is this a, a trial faulted by design? You know, I don't know about the design necessarily. I, I always say we should run simple RCTs. They There are four groups and they split again. And it, it gets a little confusing when you start doing that kind of thing. I find it hard to believe that this result will be replicated in phase three. So if I were a betting man and I am, I would take the under. Um, it definitely needs to be developed. This is exciting data. We need to replicate it. And uh verify it and if so i mean i think this would be a great pathway but you know i mean you're putting it head to head against a, an effective therapy already and seeing something like almost double the efficacy it's it's almost implausible so we need to we need more data here right but and what if everyone had already failed the active comparator because that wasn't an exclusion criteria then that would really blunt an active comparator response and double those um in the i guess naive who knows? So yeah, I think we need more data. Yeah, I mean, the, the ACR50 for TOF in this study was already 42%. I mean, 42% is higher than the ACR50 for TOFA in the TOFA versus placebo trials. So I mean, the whole thing is a little bit questionable. So we'll we'll see how we'll see how this shakes out in the end. I'm glad you brought it up. I think it's uh something that's sort of we're all talking about right now. You have to worry about results that are done from just the host country. And a lot of these trials from China look really good and their safety looks really good. And it's, I'm reminded of when I was a fellow and presenting the data on the CD5 immunotoxin in RA and had to quote a 51% placebo response. This is the early days of ACR 205070. Um, and then Mike Weinblatt gets up at the microphone and asks me, Jack, very interesting data. The drug got killed because of the placebo response. Why was your placebo response um, in 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 the U.S. 51%, whereas the the trials done in Europe and Germany on the anti-CD4 showed an 8% placebo response? And you know, like, how do you answer that? The point is that you know how you do is often predicated about how many options are available to the patient in, in that host country in that situation. And there's a lot of factors that Janet pointed out. So this needs to be done and done better. David, final comment. Oh, I think um, I, I live with a little bit of optimism and I take everything that you said and more. I think everyone said more with um, uh, well and truly, um, I believe. I think, though, that um, you've got to be aiming for if if we're going to introduce new rheumatoid arthritis therapies into this um, crowded um, in the crowded therapeutic landscape that we have, they've got to be offering something. They've got to be offering something like improved efficacy even if we find it hard to believe or because I mean, or you've got to be providing better safety or be able to get through in refractory patients or offer something else. I mean, I think teletacept, um, which in the, in the um, plenary, which Janet in the late breaking plenary, which Janet um, chaired, um, it wasn't really, it was teletacept, the placebral um, uh, inhibitor in um, rheumatoid arthritis. And really, it's not clear to me what that offers. Another study from China, 
that that was probably one of the moments when I lost a little bit of faith in the clinical trials landscape in China, when we were having this discussion on stage about how many of the patients were biologic experienced, and we couldn't answer those kind of, apparently that data is not being collected. And I hope that was a misunderstanding, but heavens, we can't, we can't have trials where rheumatoid arthritis trials where we can't say what the previous DMARDs um, experience has been. So I think nevertheless, I, I'm, sitting back with popcorn for the rest of the for, for the next couple of years and seeing what's happening okay michael what's your next one yeah i have a quick hit here um so this is abstract l12 this is a late breaker and um there's nothing particularly exciting about this other than the introduction of another tick inhibitor so this was a randomized phase two double blind placebo controlled trial of patients with active psoriatic arthritis um the molecule is toc 279 and they looked at three different doses and the two higher doses showed um, a better acr20 response at week 12. and so for my quick hit I'm excited that we have another class. I'm excited that we're going to have more options in the class. Because I think one of the, the lessons from the introduction of JAX is that we need to have a lot of information about different approaches to these pathways up front. Uh, it would have been nice if we'd had UPA and filgotinib and baricitinib uh, developed alongside tofacitinib. So I think we would have had more comparison. And then briefly, since I just mentioned it, I want to give a fond farewell to Filgotinib. I just, it's very strange that the development program that ceased a couple of years ago, there are multiple abstracts at ACR this year about it, but it does not have regulatory approval in the United States. And I don't think it will be. There's some concerns about sperm, spermatogenesis. And so um, it's really interesting to see how idiosyncratic these development programs can go. And so I, I'm glad to see that we have at least another one in this class that will be uh, moving forward. So the sperm studies that they were, the FDA was demanding were completed and were done and showed no concern for filgotinib. Um, but yet, Mike, you're right. They're not pursuing it. It's a regulatory approval in the United States, even though it's available um, where David is and, and other, other countries. So, um, yeah, I think that's odd. I guess my question about um, yet another TIC2 or yet another IL-6 or yet another TNF, are, are, is this good? Or is this bad? I wrote a blog a few weeks ago about information overload. And, in, you know, guys like you, gals like you, love more uh, more therapeutic options. You love seeing these studies, but you're the experts. You just, it's data to review and more slides to teach from. And But is it um, overwhelming for the prescribing base, Janet? Uh, so it's a great question, but you know what? We often need more than one in a class and it's because people can have... Um, idiosyncratic reactions to one because having um, the bioavailability might be different in how you either absorb, get it intracellularly or how you actually extracellularly get the drug out on these small molecules as well as biologics, the macromolecules. So I think um, uh, we've all seen people back in the day that if one drug in the class didn't work, sometimes we'll go back to that class and the next one does, or um, you got secondary loss of benefit and maybe we cycle later and go back. So I think more than one in any of these subsets is welcome by me. Okay. All right, Mike, uh, that, uh, who's doing the next one? I guess, uh, Janet. Um, okay, this is a real quick one, and I chose it because you did mention earlier that um, interferon signature can be uh, decreased in uh, treatment that works in lupus, including decravacidinib, because 
you know, things work in different ways. So this is just, um, it's it's fun if you're a basic scientist, it's pretty pictures for, I think, the rest of us. So this was abstract um, 0013, and it was looking at T-cell signature on single-cell RNA, single-cell seq, varying um, response to a JAK inhibitor or a TNF inhibitor. Number one, it's not ready for prime time, but number two, it does show different pathways um, are responding with different drugs. And um, if you're a responder, your pathway of downregulation of bad things and lymphocytes looks better than if you're a non-responder. So why would I choose something not ready for prime time with pretty pictures? It's because I think the future will be AI helping us early on or prior to our selection of a drug saying, if you have this gene signature, cytokine signature, this kind of um, marker, you should go this way over that. And maybe it'll double our odds of, if I go down this route, I have a better response, number one. But number two, order of effect is really important and no studies take that into consideration. What if I did Jack, then a TNF versus TNF, then a Jack, would I be better off for the long-term in a patient or will it always be accessing comfort that will be driving the way that I, uh, you know, prescribe in the future. So it's not ready for us to use in the clinic, but very interesting. And we're seeing a lot of these um, biomarkers by, by RNA-seq or cytokine signature. Yeah, it is. It's probably the future. I don't know that um, most of us are welcoming the complexity of decision-making offered by these, these tools, but um, why not if it's going to make you better than a 50-50 uh, time cost? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll am I'm. be a small curmudgeon on this one. I, I think that precision medicine rheumatology is the future and will be the future for quite some time. We, we just aren't there with these yet. There was a really interesting comparative study a while back in Lancet where they looked at rituximab or I think it was TNFs. They performed synovial biopsies, did RNA sequencing, all the fancy stuff and showed that their enormous RNA sequencing panel was able to predict response a little bit. Um, but then if you actually looked at simple like immunohistochemistry and, and, and more available assays, it was they weren't capable of, of replicating the results. And so I think that if you look at an incredibly granular and expensive level, you get yourself a little bit of juice. But uh, that my take home from it is that most of these things aren't ready for prime time. And immune system is just really complicated. And we have yet to crack that nut uh, to, to a degree where we can make these sorts of choices really truly in a guided fashion. Yeah, the paper that you're talking about is Constantine Pizalis, the R4RA study. And if the one thing that that showed me was all those great analyses showed me how bad we are treating RA and that the, we're unaffecting the fibroblast uh, gene signatures. And that's where all the damage and all the non-response comes from. But, you know, it's a great exercise. It, that study has generated a lot of discussion but yeah, it's definitely not prime time. So David, why don't you give us our, your last tip for the day? Absolutely. Well, um, I'm, I just want to talk about abstract 0429, um, which is uh, analysis from Select Compare. And I think, um, which was, of course, um, Ipatacidinib versus Adalimumab in rheumatoid arthritis. I think it's always, um, we've, always we've seen quite a lot of um, really interesting data come out from studies, uh, well, uh, from Select Compare. I think we should be, I'm really glad that the sponsor in this case thought carefully about answering a number of different um, varied questions. This, I think, I'm not sure whether we've answered or not. And it comes down to the idea of direct and indirect effects of upadacitinib on pain versus TNF inhibitors. 
So um, they use a mediation analysis, and I, I don't want to kind of get into too much depth, but really it's about trying to understand what the causal pathway is, try and find the contributors to, the, um, uh, to causation, and then um, try and separate out what we think could be the direct effect of upadacinib on pain versus TNF inhibitors. And so what we saw in this was actually a substantive improvement, well, substantive contribution to pain improvement from upadacinib directly rather than indirectly through inflammation. And certainly much more for that than adalimumab. Now, I mean, that's all very well and good. And I think if you take the high level bit there, you think, well, maybe I should be using upadacinib in every patient who has um, seems to have some central sensitization in rheumatoid arthritis. Maybe this is a really good option. Maybe this might be effective for pain. And if it feels like we've been here before, we have been here before. We were here before with baricitinib um, when we, 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 and, you know, we've, even did more and drew out some potential causal pathways. We, we've been here before for gaselcomab in psoriatic arthritis. But we haven't actually seen, speaking of direct and indirect, we haven't seen direct data of this. And I think what we'd really like to see, these are all, you know, inferences that we're making, but I don't think we can really hold our, um, our hand on our heart and say that this is definitely true. I'd really love to see if, if one of the needs that we still have in um, from that jack inhibitors could potentially fill is dealing with patients with amplified pain. I'd really like us to see us to actually do clinical trials and target patients who have inflammatory arthritis and amplified pain and see how these 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 um, therapies go. You know, this is potentially an enormous market. If you if I knew that upadacinib gave me an advantage in that situation over adalimumab, if I really knew that, then I, that that'd be something which would really sway my um, prescribing. So I think that I really would like to see that. Mike, your view on this? Yeah, I, I there was a lot at the meeting on this topic, and I think it's absolutely essential. We've all bumped into this point where you feel like you've controlled the um, inflammatory pain, and you say, "Well, what's next?" And you know, any anything extra to help with that is really relevant because we're trying to make our patients feel better, live longer, have happier lives, and the pain part of it is a big a big driver. Um, I suspect that this is true, but marginal, if that makes sense. Um, I believe it. And I feel like I've seen this in uh, my own use of these of these agents. So I'm I'm on board, but I, I don't think it's enough to overcome my my current tree for you know which biologic to start first and next. And Janet? I think even when you're helping pay more, it's from a patient perspective, it's not enough. You know, most people are dissatisfied walking around with a mean follow-up RA patients are four out of 10 in pain. And that's not coming in on a flare. That's the average patient coming in. And many of them started at zero or one before their RA. And it's true in PSA, ANXPA, et cetera. So I think that we still haven't figured out how to downregulate the pathways of central pain. And I always say to patients, well, you know, if you broke your leg and it's healed, your leg's still not the same leg as if it never happened. So you get a chronic disease like, like burning, putting acid in all these joints or in your axial area, you're going to have pain uh, even when things heal up. So I think that we need the, the mind-body connections to help people as much as we can, not just drugs, even though they're really important. And we can't deny the pain. I think we also need, if you have a healthier lifestyle, if um, you're being proactive in your disease and mindfulness and things like that, and not um, catastrophizing pain, that that can help people as well. But easier said than done. It's tough to live in pain every day. 
Yeah, as Mike said earlier, there were a lot of abstracts on this issue of residual pain in people who responded very well to some intervention. Uh, we, as David said, we've seen this before, um, and it looks like that maybe there's a better pain effect with the JAK inhibitors than the other classes, but that's just like scratching the surface of that, and it, and then it is a little bit of this. It's not like a major thing. It's it's something worth talking about, but like then. And then, then you have to get into mechanistically, why would one drug be better than another? I mean, jacks don't cross the blood-brain barrier, and I'm not sure that that's the mechanism. But uh, And then lastly, what is residual pain? You know, is it is it functional? Is it is it structural? Is it, uh, is it inf inflammation-based? These are all the challenges we have to deal with. Um, I just think that it, it's a little bit like the, the elephant and the three blind men. Everyone's sort of taking a look at this and trying to describe it without really telling us what it is that we're dealing with. So maybe it takes a more concerted effort or ongoing research, but nonetheless, this is what we got out of ACR 23. I want to thank the panel for a great discussion and for their really hard work. You know, what you don't know is that these folks were actually looking at the abstracts for weeks before the ACR earmarking the things that they really wanted to go after and learn from. And, uh, and they did a fabulous job covering that room. Now check out their videos and, uh, their tweets on Twitter. We do have a number of other topic videos where we have the, the the faculty panels get together to discuss RA or lupus or PSA spa. And now we're adding to that our discussion of Jack and Tick. Hope you enjoyed it. Tune in for more. Thanks, guys.